Welcome to the Bravest Kind Podcast. I am your host, Ryan Schaefer, and I am a firefighter and EMT in the Seattle area. I'm excited you're on this journey with me, and I look forward to sharing stories of brave and vulnerable individuals, as it is my sincere belief that by doing so, it gives us the ability to unlock bravery within ourselves. This is episode 27 of The Bravest Kind, and my guest today is Lee Rowley. Lee and I have a unique connection as our lives first intersected on the night of August 4th, 2014. I was on shift at the Kirkland Fire Department that night when we received a 911 call. That call was for Lee's newborn son, Jeffrey, who developed complications during childbirth. Following his delivery, Jeffrey did not have a pulse. My crew was dispatched to the scene where we performed CPR on Jeffrey. He ultimately survived that night. However, Jeffrey developed lifelong disabilities and lost his life just shy of his sixth birthday. Lee and I discussed the night of Jeffrey's birth, the challenges of raising a child with disabilities, and the toll it took on her personal life, including the end of her first marriage. Lee's story is also one of hope and resiliency as she talks about the unique bond and unconditional love she shared with Jeffrey, how she has gained more empathy and understanding for others facing challenges in their lives, and found love and happiness again as she has remarried and recently gave birth to a baby girl named Gigi. Lee practices Buddhism, and not only is this topic broached throughout the interview, it is apparent as Lee speaks that she displays a sense of inner calm and peace. This episode was recorded at night, and Lee's daughter Gigi awakens at one point during our interview. So if you hear the sounds of a cooing baby in the background, that is Lee's newborn daughter joining in the conversation. A quick reminder before we start today's show, if you have not yet done so, please rate and subscribe to The Bravest Kind on either Apple or Spotify podcast and share the show with others. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, post and tag The Bravest Kind on social media. Find me, Ryan Schaefer, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. I have with me today, Lee Rowley. And Lee, thank you so much for joining me today on my podcast, The Bravest Kind. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Uh, Lee, we have an interesting past together, and this is unlike any episode that I have done. The reason being, our paths first crossed on the night of August 4th, 2014, when you gave birth to your son, Jeffrey. And there were some complications during the delivery, which I'll have you talk about here in just a moment. When Jeffrey was born, he developed shoulder dystocia, which you can probably explain in depth. But ultimately, when finally the delivery was complete, there was no pulse detected on Jeffrey. And so you were at a midwife and birthing center. They called 911 and I was dispatched with my crew and we actually did CPR on your son that very moment. And during CPR, everyone has different roles, particularly I, this call was doing assisted ventilation. So I was working the bag valve mask and we finally were able to get a pulse back on Jeffrey. You know, there's a lot of different rotations and moving parts in a, in, in a cardiac arrest call. And when we're doing CPR, when you're doing the ventilations, that's, that's where you are. And so that was where I was at the whole time. And I was with Jeffrey from the time from working on him, which was 
a really long time. We finally got the pulse. I remember transporting them to the hospital. Your husband at the time came with us. And that is often the end of the story on, on our end as first responders. Sometimes we get some follow-up, we hear about what happened, but there is more to our story. Um, We're here now talking about this seven years later. I did have the opportunity to meet Jeffrey at the fire station. I remember you all brought him by, uh, what, a month or two later, but he did develop some lifelong complications and uh, we'll talk about some of that as we go. But what I'd really like to do is set the stage from your end on that particular night on August 4th, the night that Jeffrey was born, because I know my story and I know what we went through, but I don't have any idea. And I can't really imagine from your side being the mother to this. So if you feel comfortable with it, if you could tell our listeners a little bit about that night from your perspective and what you recall and some of your thoughts and feelings as all this was going on. Sure. It it was, I was 41 weeks pregnant and 28 years old and in really good shape and health. And I, I wanted to um, have a birth that was free of medical interventions and have a natural experience and, having a hospital adjacent birth sounded like the right place for me. And everything was normal until about, I don't know, less than 10 minutes before you and I met. And that's when we detected that Jeffrey did not have a heartbeat. And so the midwives uh, adjusted me, shuffled me around a few times, um, Jeffrey had a a shoulder dystocia, which means that his shoulder was stuck behind my hip bone. Uh, And so they had a hard time getting him out. And once they did, uh, he didn't have a heartbeat and he was not breathing. And so they started doing chest compressions and CPR and and, and called you. And and, uh, I... I frankly thought I was like, okay, I think this is a stillbirth. Is this mm. a stillbirth? Is I guess I go home now. I guess I just take my things and go here soon. Um, and and then I, I I was just looking around the room and I was thinking, oh my god, it's really quiet. There's it's really quiet for as many people as are in here. Uh, a minute ago, it was just me and two, two three midwives and my husband at the time, Keith, and and now all y'all are here and it's really overwhelming and, but it's all very silent. And then someone said, we have a heartbeat. And, um, you know, honestly, I, I, <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't believe it at the time because it had taken so long. It, it, it was long. We, and, you know, I think any time in a position like that with a newborn, we will do anything possible for as long as possible to give that child any chance at all. But I do recall we did CPR for quite some time on Jeffrey. That's interesting that you're having those thoughts and then, you know, just about, is this a stillbirth? And I guess I just gather my stuff and, and, and go home. And then what did you feel or think when you heard those words that we have a pulse? Do you, do you remember anything specific about that moment? That I, I thought everything would be okay. Okay. 
I didn't know about traumatic brain injury or hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy or epilepsy. I mean, I I knew a little bit. I was aware. I had been a a peer helper in the past and the journey that I was going to be on, I had no idea what I was headed for. Yeah. All I knew is that you were on that ambulance and I wanted to be where you were headed. Yeah. Well, that, and that's got to be a pretty just isolating, lonely feeling. Here you're expecting to have this magical moment of bringing life into the world. You chose this setting because it was quiet and intimate and not a typical hospital setting with the fluorescent lights and all kinds of machines and beeping and hustle and bustle. So you're thinking you're going to have this very special, intimate moment. Yeah, and like a nice bath. Yeah, of course. And then a spa, and then you—I I don't know what I was there. Yeah, well, and then <laughs> you're—you have this. There's this complication. All of a sudden, as you said, you have all these firefighters and paramedics in there, mm-hmm. and it is often, you know, for as chaotic as it can seem. You said that it was quiet. I, I would say, you know, when it comes to CPR, it's something we do a lot. We're pretty dialed with that. Everybody knows what to do. And so it is a very orchestrated thing that we do. And everybody pretty much knows a role. Now saying that, it is super heightened when it is a newborn such as Jeffrey was or a young child. There's no doubt that that adds to the anxiety level for all I, involved ourselves. I have a 911 comms team. I heard they were just holding their breath. And when it was announced that he had a heartbeat, hmm. cheering, it was. Oh man, that's incredible. I, I, I tell you that I get a little bit of an extra flutter every time we get dispatched to that, to that birthing center. Cause that's in our call area. And just because I, and probably be, because of this particular call i'm just like oh man are we is is this gonna is this here we go again type of feeling sometimes is is that gonna happen again okay so you said that you know at the time you heard that jeffrey had a pulse and in your mind everything was going to be totally fine which turned out not to be the case Entirely. So if you could tell us a little bit then about the preceding days and months and ultimately years uh, following this particular day. They um, took him to the hospital in Kirkland and it only has a level four NICU. But after when for Jeffrey's recovery, they were going to need treatment from a level five NICU. So upon my arrival at the hospital, I was told that we were going to have to go to yet another hospital and it was going to be Seattle Children's downtown. And I thought, I, I, I thought him surviving, he's, he's laying there, he's moving and I can see he's all right. And then it was explained to me that He lost oxygen. He didn't have oxygen for a very long time. So his brain cells died. Those brain cells don't grow back. He may require lifelong care, but no one talked about what what actually that would mean or or how, or it it was just all very vague. So we were sitting there waiting for a special ambulance to take us to to Seattle Children's. Can I interrupt you real quick? Do you think that nobody knew the extent or did nobody want to tell you and deliver the news? Um, 
the doctor that spoke to us, I think because my my husband at the time, Keith, was already there and had already arrived. He had already heard the story. And for me, I didn't really know what had happened until I arrived at the Seattle Children's Hospital and met the neurologist. And then once I met the neurologist, I realized that we were in big trouble, that we were going to have a three-day period where they were going to cool Jeffrey's body to 92 degrees. And it's a cooling therapy that they do for children that have oxygen loss. And then they'd warm his body temperature back up and do an MRI. So at three days, we would know um, if what level of brain injury this would have. And the reason they turn the body temperature down is to stop the swelling to reduce the damage of the brain after an injury. And kind of like you'd put ice on a wound. Yeah. So they, so that was a very long three days. He was having a lot of seizures and they were having a hard time controlling them. So they put him on so much medication that it looked like he had very, very little brain activity. When they finally did the MRI, the neurologist told us that it was moderate to severe, more severe, and that he was probably going to require lifelong, lifelong care. So that was the three days in the hospital at Seattle Children's. So then we thought maybe we'd only be in for three days, but we were in for 30 days with Jeffrey at the hospital. And the main reason is he was not um, breathing very well. And he was also, we were going to have to learn how to put him on to a feeding tube and they weren't sure quite what feeding tube, but depended on how he developed. And well, it was just a, a blanket message of wait and see. And the other thing we were told is that nothing good happens fast. So, we just kind of sat and waited and learned as much as we could, but it wasn't until we got home that, that we were really tasked with, uh, you know, making life happen and making our jobs, going back to work, trying daycare with a child with special needs. Um, and then ultimately uh, going through the process of separation and then divorce so before we go there, talk to me about just what some of the special needs were that Jeffrey developed. We first saw signs of a visual impairment. They wanted him on seizure medications, but uh, we were able to wean off of those when he was six months old. With uh, his vision, we noticed he was kind of always looking toward one direction And that was from the brain damage from his birth, uh, causing a block in his field of vision, really. And so he also had uh, developed cerebral palsy. And so we thought that there was a very little chance that he'd be walking. We thought he was going to be wheelchair bound. He was initially not responding well to, to a bottle. And so he was on a feeding tube, um, but he'd pull his feeding tube out almost every single day, sometimes several times a day. So that became really big hassle. Um, but ultimately he, he 
grew up and grew out of those things. He was able to be bottle fed. He was able to be fed by, fed by me. So we were able to bond that way. And, and we had just a, a really close relationship. Um, just, just having my little buddy. And, and so for five years, he was my only child. And in, uh, when I met my now husband, Brandon, we incorporated our, our, his 13 year old daughter and 11 year old son and Jeffrey adored them. And we had made this beautiful family in January of 2020 and had, had brought everyone together and had gone on family vacations and, um, we got married at a family reunion and Jeffrey was part of it. He was the ring bearer and he was able to walk and talk and make friends. And we had even whitewater raft (laughs) and go hiking and go in a cave. Um, So we just had this wonderful whirlwind trip of a lifetime. And then we got home and we were thinking we were, we were getting ready to enroll him in a school district and, and start a new chapter in Olympia. And then uh, one night he died and it was very similar to his birth where other than the fact that instead of giving or being on the delivery end of him, I was, um, I was in more in your shoes, Ryan. I was giving him CPR and and mouth to mouth until the medics arrived. And um, I could tell like he he didn't have a heartbeat at all. Um, It might've been an aspiration or it might've been his heart stopping related to a seizure. I'm not sure, but I am sure that he died in my arms. And that if there was anyone who could save him, it would have been me because I was so paranoid <laughs> that that he would need to be that he would need yeah. some sort of care. That that I became the mom that is prepared to tie a tourniquet or <laughs> or um, have a band aid or or whatever the, whatever seizure medicine. I, I was ready, yeah. um, but I couldn't save him. And in both cases, I went through some periods of guilt, but because I am trying to do more to practice compassion and starting with myself, um, I I really tried to, I really learned how to not be at odds with myself. And um, I think that that, that grief and loss has taught me that. Well, first of all, I cannot, Imagine being in a position of having to do CPR on your own child. Just it wasn't the, uh, the first time. Uh, and I was actually, <laughs> so, well, here's, I was going to ask you that. I was going to ask you if in those, so Jeffrey, this happened in 2020. You said you got married yeah. at the beginning of 2020 to your now husband um, and Jeffrey passed. What in the summer of 2020? 
Mm-hmm. So he was, uh, would have been what, almost, almost six years old. He was just yeah. about to turn six years uh, old. Just about to turn six. Okay. So were there multiple, there were other instances then in those six years of his life where you, where he went into cardiac arrest, where you actually had to do CPR on him? He had a, he had a grand mal seizure and he had a seizure at his dad's once. And so we had some ambulance rides, but not, he didn't, uh, what happened that night was very different. I mean, he, it wasn't a grand mal seizure. It was some seizure activity and then his heart stopped. So I, I didn't necessarily perform uh, CPR in the past, but I, definitely resuscitated him with uh, seizure medication and waited at his side and watched his eyes and tried to study where he was looking at that might detect where his seizures coming from or what kind of movements are happening or get your video camera out or taking data and watching the time. Uh, Really all I could be was his shadow in life through his challenged hand and his suffering and um and so part of me uh with jeffrey i thought my biggest fear was always what was going to happen when i die or if if something happened to me and i was unable to care for him let alone myself like all of a sudden now everything looked too dangerous to do, you know, like, Oh God, I would never do that. I could poke an eye out. And then how would someone care for Jeffrey? You know? So all of a sudden this worry that I had carried on my shoulders for years, what would happen if I die? What was What is, how is he going to be if I die? All of a sudden it was just, my time was done. My role was done. I was longer as a special needs mother. I was no longer the role of the caregiver. Um, I now had freedom to do whatever job I wanted to do. The first thing I can say about being a challenged parent is it's very challenging to find a role, meaningful role in the workforce. And so, but at that time I had, I had nothing. I had, I had, built my whole life around like the care of Jeffrey and being the primary caregiver of Jeffrey. I, I have a background. I went to business school and, and have a background in marketing and technology, but I was working as a life skills paraeducator just so I could be next to his school, just so I could be a part of his life and to know what the school's expectations were for a kid. So, so challenging and, and how to abide and how to get along. And, and I'll say that becoming a paraeducator as the parent of a child with special needs was one of the smartest things I ever did because I learned how to walk the walk and walk the talk. And, and I was a one-on-one paraeducator for a fifth grader with similar challenges as my son. So I was getting a nice thorough look ahead. Yeah. And that certainly changed what kind of mom I was at home and what kind of behaviors I thought were okay and which ones I would try to adjust and tune up because I could see that as a fifth grader, they would cause problems. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, no, sure. Uh, well, that's gotta be, yeah. Like you said, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure your entire being, your entire identity and everything that you're putting your focus and energy and thoughts into is being 
the mother of a child with special needs. And I know here you've talked about getting separated and divorced from your first husband, obviously remarried now. Was the divorce, do you think, directly related to what happened with Jeffrey at birth and the ensuing disabilities? Or were there other signs of troubles within that marriage? I think both then and Keith and I are, I wouldn't say friends now, but definitely could have a a comfortable conversation and agree that we weren't really right for each other from the start. We were very different people. He he liked cats. I liked dogs. <laughs> and need I say no, more? No. I, you know what? I was going to make a comment, and I was like, "That was probably." <laughs> <laughs> and when it came to having a child with severe special needs, he was more of a cat, and I was more of a dog. I, I wanted to go be a part of the community and know who else was dealing with what I was dealing with. I wanted to to connect and meet and grow. I wanted to know who, I didn't want anyone to have information that I didn't have. I wanted to know who all was covering insurance and, and I wanted to, you know, I wanted to be a part of things and connect to the world through my son's needs versus feeling like I was isolated by his needs. And so that was a really good outlet for me. And that's actually how we've managed to reconnect you and I, Ryan, because one of the main groups I was in uh, is a, f- a Facebook group that, uh, or community where we would meet once a month, uh, the moms, children with special needs. And uh, uh, Skip Boylan, his wife, was a member of that group. And so I learned about uh, their family and, and they have children, a household of autism as well. Jeffrey also had was diagnosed later with autism as well and some speech impairment. But yeah, just a, another household with uh, a, kids where where verbal challenges or behavior challenges happen almost every day. You know that that that's also a pretty stressful uh, situation too. I can imagine. Well, two things I'm thinking of right now. First, uh, so our listeners know, yeah, you mentioned Skip Boylan. He is a, a paramedic. And he was on this particular call as well. And he's a phenomenal medic and a phenomenal human being. And he and his wife, as you just said, also have a child with special needs. And he's the one that reached out to me and he said, Hey, you know, I don't know if you were on this call, but I've, there's this woman that I really think you should interview. He listens to a lot of my podcast episodes and he's like, she is the, a true definition of bravery and courage and vulnerability and all these things that I try to highlight. And I told him, I was like, Skip, I was on that call with Jeffrey. And his first reaction was, well, you may not want to go down that path to talking to her. It can be traumatic potentially for both of you uh, revisiting that. But I thought it would be a really wonderful opportunity to speak with you. You and I talked on the phone before we actually started, you know, what, a couple of weeks ago before we decided to actually record this. And it's really, it's an honor and it's really a, a blessing because rarely in our line of work do we get the chance to actually do this with somebody after the fact. Typically we run the call and that's the end of it. We, if we take a patient to the hospital, that's usually where our connection 
ends is right there. And sometimes we get some follow-up, but rarely do I have this kind of opportunity. So uh, I really welcomed it. And it's just one of, uh, I think, just one of life's beauties sometimes when these, when these things kind of converge uh, the, way it, the way it has. One other thing you just said, it was basically, a, I think, right there at the end when you were talking just about it was a daily struggle. How about your attitude or thoughts to others? Would you, I'm just thinking how often and how easy it is to go into complain zone in life over what is probably pretty trivial things for the most part. And I, I certainly can default into that like anybody, right? Did you ever find yourself angry at other people? Not, not because of anything they were directly or knowingly doing, but where you're just like knowing what you're dealing with every day. And you're like, look, your problems pale in comparison to what I'm dealing with. Is, is that, or did you, did you have this ability to have grace and space and understanding? In the tradition of Buddhism, which I has, have learned about and used as a, as a tool um, and practice, is they say that true practitioners are never at odds with themselves. They're patient, kind to others, and they say helpful things. And the lesson is that you don't want to be noisy or bossy. You don't want to cause people to do wrong things or to stress people out. So trying to cause less suffering overall has been um, just kind of a journey that I can focus on with my mind that takes me away from what they would call self-cherishing or focusing on the self. And when you're a challenged parent, that's a really unique opportunity to fully immerse yourself in the care of others and, and to really take on the, the attitude of, of, of losing that self-cherishing self and focusing on uh, this child and how they are a reflection of you. And you want them to be clean and well cared for and relaxed and, and happy and safe. And if you can do all those things, that's a, that's a pretty proud, proud feeling. You know, when you get those kids tucked into bed and you're like, yeah, I did it another, another night I did it. Well, Jeffrey, he had insomnia. So for me, it would be like, I did it. Now I have 90 minutes or so before, and I got to stay by the monitor here, but I would find ways to occupy myself. I would get so tired and he would get up in the night and then get fall asleep or I'd have to wait for him to fall asleep. You know, you're waiting by the door, that thing. Yeah. I ended up just starting to do like headstands and stuff. I just had to do something with my body and my mind or I was going to go crazy. And so I think those nights where I put on my hat of like openness and discovery and it's going to be a long night. Might as well try to figure out if I can actually still do a headstand at my age, you know, just something like that. <laughs> like just trying to put on your, like just making it more of an adventure and, and taking more of a lightheartedness about it is the takeaway that helped me get through the absolute hardest days with Jeffrey. The, the, times where we'd go all the way down to Seattle children's hospital to their or biobehavior clinic and, and speak to them about autism and his behaviors and how to get him to uh, 
show more appropriate ways of stress or to advocate for himself or to speak. But what I learned most throughout the journey of parenting was that uh, toward the end or before he could really speak and he, he did develop a lot of uh, many more words. Um, if I would get upset with him or if I get frustrated with him, it'd feel very unfair to, to use more than a few words because he only had a few words. So I might say, Oh, Jeffrey, you're, this is why, why are you still up in the night? Is this, why are you doing this to me? But if he can, if he can't even say four words back or he doesn't have the vocabulary, get what I'm saying. I, it just softened my heart and, and it forced me to uh, teach myself how to, how to become more neutral in different scenarios, how to relax, how to take things more easier and in stride. And, and that, those are skills that helped me through my journey in healing from the loss of Jeffrey. You carry those with you still, do you feel like? Yeah, I, I think, um, so in the tradition of, of Buddhism, if you lose somebody that you love, you can still um, give to their good name, give to their good um, energy or spirit by dedicating. Uh, sometimes you might donate a light or dedicate a light or money or, or something, but uh, I didn't have any of those things. So I dedicated time um, because I was basically just a caregiver at that time. And so I had the time I would have spent caregiving. So I went and um, this was during COVID. So I went and I started volunteering at uh, Sidewalk Homeless Services in Olympia, which allowed people to come in off the street and talk to somebody and get on the phone and get internet and get help with their case. And it really was helping a lot of people file for food stamps and uh, social services, all the kind of programs that I knew and utilized and studied as in the role of Jeffrey's mom. And also with Jeffrey's mom, I, I, I miss just being able to say mom things. So uh, once a, I would only, I'd go down there once a week for the day and I'd, I'd meet folks and they'd come back and see me and all of a sudden I needed to be somewhere and I was important and I had a role and I could say these motherly things like take better care of yourself yeah. and listen to what I'm saying. And that's not very safe <laughs> um, and, and try to help people, but to show them some support and compassion and that helped me move through what I was dealing with. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Purpose. Give you, you, know, you, had, uh, yeah, you had a purpose again. Purpose. Mm-hmm. Now, before we catch up to speed with where you are now, one thing that stuck out with me, again, we spoke on the phone prior to deciding to to go forward with doing this and recording this. And maybe you can speak a little better because I can't remember exactly what you said, but you, you made a comment along the lines that when Jeffrey did pass away, that some people made some comments I don't know if you said is something, you know, like he's in a better place now or some things along those lines. Uh, because Jeffrey had severe special needs and required a lot of care and was going to need lifelong care, mm-hmm. um, most likely, he, some, it wasn't uncommon for me to hear that, that there were, for people to point out 
that that there was you know I there was some relief yeah to the to me not having to care or be a caregiver anymore or and I I felt that that was and that was hard for my grief process because well I wouldn't say that if your neurotypical kid died so you yeah. really shouldn't say that if my kid with challenges died sure so that so it was a hard one but I learned that I need to be the one to respond kindly so that I can teach them to respond more sensitively. So it's important to point out that that when you're talking about people with special needs or challenges, it's it's a harder journey. It's it's an expensive journey. It's sometimes crushing. It's uh, an extremely burdening to the marriage, to relationships. It's isolating. It's all of those things. Um, but it's not, but I miss it. I, I would give, I would do anything. You're right back there. Yeah. My, my question that I had for you as it relates to that is, yeah, what do you want people to know? Not only about Jeffrey, but about raising a child with special needs in general. And maybe you just answered that. But if like what like when you when yeah when you did hear that or if you were to hear that said about somebody else with a child with special needs, yeah, what would you want people to know? I would want people to watch their words. If you love somebody who has who knows who has challenges or disabilities, you should never jokingly use the word retarded. You just shouldn't. If you are talking to somebody about their or being a friend or being compassionate. Um, just watch your words and just would, asking questions like, would I use those words if this were a neurotypical person in discussion or a person without challenges? Because I think to, to most degree, that's part of the hardest part of being a challenged parent is the way that other people want to talk about your challenged life and your challenges and your burdens. For some of us, we're just, you know, we want, it's, it's almost more of a personal discussion. And so it's better to just be sensitive and supporting and more careful. And, uh, and to me, well, in the tradition of Buddhism, they consider speech as the same act as behavior. So it's very heavy um, emphasis on being careful with your speech. And so that's, that would be my advice to people. If, if you are trying to support someone, if you do want to think in terms of their world, watch your words. It's a great, it's a great message for everybody. Now, you talked a little bit ago about not only the personal difficulties uh, with raising a child with special needs and the insomnia, and, and basically that was your identity and, and, and your constant worry, what if something happened to you, but then also the challenge on relationships, on career. You, however, have managed to find love again. You are in a new marriage. You said that your husband brought uh, two children to the marriage as well. I know you have uh, a new work going on, but you also, you and your new husband have welcomed a new little girl, Gigi, who I had the chance uh, to hear a little bit ago during, uh, during this interview. So what has this journey taught you 
about life and the ability to overcome adversity and having hope. You've obviously been in some very dark places, but you must have had some something inside you still wanting to fight and still wanting to proceed and and, and to live life. So yeah, what is all this taught you? I just asked you, what do you want other people to know? But how about you individually? What have you learned about yourself through all this? I was so proud on my wedding day. I felt like my uh, on July, um, we got married June 30th of 2020, and Jeffrey passed away July 13th. So, oh my goodness! But he was there, like you say, he was a he was a ring bearer. You said he right? Was so, so well cool. behaved that day. Um, as soon as I put mm-hmm. my wedding dress on, he pooped his pants. There's <laughs> his, his diaper, and I didn't feel comfortable. Of course, I'm going to be the one to change him. He's my child. And um, so it was just, you know, this hilarious time of blending these families. And I was proud. And I thought that these stepkids, I could tell that they really, truly loved him and accepted him. Um, This family loved and accepted him. I felt like I, that, um, that I had waited. I had carefully looked, I had carefully searched for love and, uh, and found it this time. So, <laughs> right. Right. one this time. And so I, things were great. And then Jeffrey died and then I wasn't a happy bride anymore. I was a person that had no will to live. And then I found out I was pregnant. And so I needed to figure out how to have a will to live right away stab right and um and so i was like well i'm really gonna need a job i need to get a job (laughs) and so um but at the same time i'm pregnant so getting a job again um and then being pregnant again is after losing a child is very scary just start to finish scary and so i i did an elective C-section on my second child for Gigi. And it was really, uh, I would say it wasn't, it wasn't at all natural, but it was manageable. It was fine. It was, it was all right. I made it. Um, everybody knew, I, I don't know, they must've read my file cause everyone was way sensitive in there. And, um, <laughs> so, and, and so it was just a moving forward experience, but I was worried that my heartbreak and the loss was going to impact my pregnancy or impact the, my child or my, my marriage and my, my kids, my stepkids would come over on the weekends and I would just have to put sunglasses on to hide that I was crying or just, just to not, but at the same time, we'd all still go to the park and I, at least I'd get out and go to the park, even though I'd cry the whole way home. Um, and they, so just having, having people there for me, uh, sometimes it was sad because I was like watching their family get to move on and watching other people's family get to move on and watching my friend's kids get to go, get older and and I didn't and I don't get to have my son. Well that that's that's a really hard feeling. That's that's almost unbearable. But I am eternally grateful 
that I had almost six years of him because you were there, Ryan. We both know that I I almost didn't have a minute. So and and to be and to say that Jeffrey's life was um, incomplete because it was short. Well, that's not fair because that kid had a very little chance of walking and he did. Um, he was diagnosed with cerebral palsy level four or something. That means, and, and he was able to walk. I learned though, that that's not always the measure of success, right? If they're able to speak, if they're able to make friends, if, if you're able to be healthy and happy, just like all of us, those are the measures of success. And, and so I, I felt like, he walked, he talked, he made friends. He was a success. He was a little fighter. He had a, a spirit, a will yeah. to live. He That's did. For sure. uh, he was, and compared to my daughter, Gigi, everything comes naturally. It's, um, and she's relaxed and she seems really confident in the world. Jeffrey had a noisy brain and, and, he, but he woke up fully charged to take on every day. And perhaps he just couldn't sustain that energy. But I mean, that kid had just unbelievable force and power. And I, I am forever empowered by having him at my side. And now as a person who works for the state of Washington, I am eyes out looking for things that are making sure things are accessible for people, um, making sure that things are easier to read, easier to look at. Uh, that's how I carry him on in my heart. Yeah. Lee, you are happiest when? I'm happiest when listening to music with family. What kind of music? What's your, what's your genre? Um, what's your go-to? I would say that uh, my husband and I, we listen to a lot of different things. He he sells music too. I sure do like more of the new age sounds these days, but we we like uh, Kitaro. You heard of Kitaro? I would I would say that if 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 I'm gonna have a moment where I need to just feel really good and just chill out and just you know stretch out and 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 feel at peace, I'm gonna put on Kitaro. <laughs> All right. Okay. I, 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 look, I need to, I need those feelings all the time. I'm going to go to the tower up right when we're done here. <laughs> I will. My optimizer performance at work sure. and we'll save, save another life. So it could, could be good advice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Perfect. I'm in. Sold. Right, Lee, you have to do something you're scared to do. What is your process of quieting that fear and proceeding anyways? To pretend that the fear is an illusion. And I guess if you can pretend it is, then it is. Because oftentimes the fear is yeah. just that, an illusion and something that we yeah, make up I, in I our could, mind. I could, I thought I could physically feel the pressure of that question in my head of what's going to happen when Jeffrey dies. And, and then I could, all, hmm. and I, and it's almost like I felt it go away and, and lift. But what was it? It was stress that I put on myself for absolutely no reason ever. It never, it never amounted to anything other than stress that I carried when he was alive that I didn't have to. Were you ever told by doctors of a life expectancy or anything like that with Jeffrey? Was there any talk of 
well, you'll be lucky to get three years or a 10 years or mm, was that ever a few days? I could tell that we would be yeah. lucky to get through the next day or I could it was early on. It was very scary about the time he died. I really thought he might have a, a shorter life expectancy than most, but not by much. So the fact that he died as young as he did, mm-hmm. despite everything and, and all of his mental and physical challenges that, that still was a, it was, that was unexpected. Yeah. We, we had hoped, I mean, I was planning on or thinking of a world in which he might need to take the bus and maybe have his own, maybe live in a group home or something and, and needing lifelong care. Yeah. So, and at kindergarten, he was, um, he had completed kindergarten. He was able to say letters, say words, but formulating sentences, he had um, really severe challenges that uh, mostly related to cerebral palsy because there's like 22 muscles in the mouth. So formulating words and speech is something we really take for granted. It's much more complex than I ever realized. So for me, I think that becoming like at this point in the journey, I talk less than I ever have and I feel less of an expert than I ever have. I feel like I'm more learning and growing and trying and more interested in what other people have to teach and to share. And I want to know more about their experiences because in a way I'm trying to fill a hole and listening, being in the presence of other people uh, that, that does, that does the trick. (laughs) That helps. You've referenced, Buddhism a couple times. And again, when we spoke on the phone uh, a couple of weeks ago, I know you said that you're practice Buddhism. Is that something that you did prior to the uh, birth of Jeffrey? Is that something that you've always been interested in or is that a new yeah, thing came, in your uh, life? The Dalai Lama of Tibet came to my, my school about 10 years before that, but I got into it with Jeffrey because I was trying to practice more patience techniques and I was trying to practice more uh, mental duration, <laughs> how to mentally endure um, because I was, yeah. I was coming upon periods of anger and rage and impatience and grudges and not forgiving. And, and um, looking back, I, I, it was just a really hard time caring for myself, but I didn't do a very good job of protecting my, the walls of my, of my existence, you know, of, okay, if you're going to be taking on the challenge of challenge parenting, then, then some of these relationships shouldn't be happening. And maybe some of the, you know, you need to go to bed earlier, not sign up for this program or not take on too much or, but looking back, I, I can see that I was curious and adventure. I tried new things and and the practice of Buddhism, whatever whatever that might be, has just been an an enhancement. I I think it's important to have some sort of direction in life. I mean, at least grab a paddle and go one way. You know, at least pick a side. Just try, um, because to me, the it seems at least important to keep practicing the discipline. You know, so 
You know what they say, the world belongs to the discipline. You guys have discipline. It's a very yeah. disciplined line of work that you're in. So it 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 is. It, it is. There's no doubt about it. And I think you're right. My wife and I talk about that all the time, about both of us just in our own family life and personal life, about the need for more discipline at times. And sometimes it's like with discipline then comes freedom. It's this weird thing. If you have this discipline, it, it opens up more opportunities for for freedom rather than just kind of constantly being all over the place. It's a it's a weird yeah, paradox, I exactly. think. Exactly. It would it would be like, oh wow, I have a whole meal plan. But instead of feeling locked into a meal plan, I'm like, wow, am I gonna do carrots tonight or <laughs> which now I get to use a variant to my plan versus yeah. just kind of throwing stuff together. Yeah, I think that I think that's part of it is that when discipline yeah. is a type of organization, it's an organization of time and presence and place and self and behavior. And yeah, I also talk about like some really you know high high performance, however you want to define that. I think like Anderson Cooper, right? He eats like the exact same breakfast every single day, and the fewer decisions you have to make on a day, right? We can only handle so much capacity to make decisions, and so when you can strip away some of the the more basic and benign decisions, such as that, what am I going to wear? What am I going to eat? Da 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 da. Then you can use that mental capacity for more meaningful. <laughs> that is exactly Buddhism. It's like the, the act of letting go. Oh, or, look at that. Uh, renouncing or saying, this isn't good for me, so I'm not going to do that anymore. Or I, I waste my time doing this, so I'm going to do less of that. But just trying to to focus on not cherishing the self, but motivating the self. Hmm. You know, like, hey, I can... I can do a lot with my mind. I can solve problems with my mind. I can help people with my mind. I can use my skills to make a difference. Pretty powerful. Most all of us can do better. That's for sure. Uh, Lee, what does being brave mean to you? Being brave is knowing, is walking into the dark and trusting that it's going to get light again. I like that. And that's obviously happened for you. Did you do you feel like you always had that trust? Was there always a little glimmer of even in your darkest days? Were you able to have that yeah. trust and belief, even if it was very small? The day that Jeffrey almost died, I was so relieved that he lived. Mm. And then he lived another day and then another one. And we built on that happiness. And then when he passed away, I felt left behind and lost and sad. But I could, I, well, what happened was we were just driving around and we saw a homeless man struggling and I just burst into tears because I thought if I die and Jeffrey wandered off into the woods a few days or something like he could end up looking like a person that, and then being treated this way. And so how do I know the difference? Like, why would I want to treat that individual any less. So in a way, losing my son, I went and started treating random homeless people like my son. I, I, I started, I took them under my wing. I gave them my advice. I, I tried to help them, some of whom I still keep in contact with and have helped them find a home and That's amazing. access to care and benefits, and but continuing on for the good of others. Oh, Lee, you are a very inspiring person. And just hearing that 
story right there, I think sums it all up. I think this, uh, this world would be a whole lot better if we had a lot more people like you. And I just, uh, so impressed with all that you've been through and how you are still able to have that kind of perspective and see the good in others and see the good in yourself. And uh, just huge congratulations to you and your husband on the birth of your little baby girl, Gigi. And I just wish you all the best and all the happiness. It's certainly well-deserved. And this has just really been a special opportunity to to reconnect with you under much, much happier circumstances than the first time. Yeah. Way more chill this time around, right? Much more chill. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Enjoy that. uh, Enjoy the time with Gigi and your husband and, and your other two children. How old are they? 13 and 11. 13 and 11. All right. Y'all have a full house. You're busy. Mm-hmm. Got teen, a teen, a preteen, and uh, and an infant. We are a full house. You really are. Well, enjoy the ride. Yeah. Well, thank you. And take care, and best to you and your family. Wishing you good health and happiness. Thanks, Lee. I appreciate that. Right back at you. <laughs> All right. Take care. Bye. That's a wrap on episode 27 with Lee Rowley. Thanks again to Lee for joining me on The Bravest Kind and revisiting the night of August 4th, 2014. I don't typically have the opportunity to speak to someone we've seen in a 911 emergency capacity. I'm grateful for the time Lee had with her son, Jeffrey, and also to learn that she is in a happy and healthy marriage with a growing family. To find out more about what's going on with me and to hear more stories of guests that have appeared on The Bravest Kind, you can visit my website at ryanshafer.com. That's R-Y-A-N-S-H-E-A-F-F-E-R.com. You can also find the show on Apple or Spotify podcasts. One final reminder to share, rate, and subscribe to The Bravest Kind with Ryan Schaefer. We'll be back at it next week with another fearless guest. Until then, continue to be brave in your own lives. Thank you.